Thank you, Becky. And sorry that the microphone was set so high. <laughs> Tim must have thought, I don't know, the average height of our church or something. Maggie did it. Well, good morning and welcome to Twin Cities Church. If you're joining us online or here in person, we've been going through the Pentateuch now for two years, uh, and it's been a a great journey through really trying to understand uh, what God has called us to as a people. These first five books of the Bible are so foundational for, for who we are and for what we believe about God and about ourselves. And as we've been going through this, Right, we've been going through various parts of, from Genesis on, and we're now here at the very end of Deuteronomy, and the people are about to go into the land. They have experienced this calling of God, the promise of a Savior who will come, this child that will come out of their midst. They have gone into slavery in Egypt and have been redeemed by God's mighty hand. They have gone through the waters, through the desert, to Mount Sinai, to God Him very self, and giving them the law revealing himself to them and now bringing them kicking and screaming, like we talked about, grumbling and complaining all the way through and are now about to enter the land that God has promised. And throughout this time, right, this reiteration of the call to them to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, right, to love the Lord and to love people, to be a blessing to the nations, to be a blessing to the people that you are to go in and be amongst. And so as we come to this, today's passage, it's in this context of how to love the people that they're going to go into, how to be a distinct and holy people, and to be a blessing to the nations. You know, if you look at all of this chapter, you know, we just put just the one verse in, but if you look at all of chapter 22, it's in this various laws section, right, where all of a sudden Moses just goes through very distinct and specific laws for the people and how they're supposed to live when they go into the land. Um, to, the, to the detail of how you are to build your houses, right? Like how, how high you're to build walls on the very tops, all types of various laws. How you are to handle if you come upon someone else's property when you're just out on the road. How you are to sow your fields. How you are to collect eggs from nests and not kill mother birds. Uh, two very powerful and important ones on how to protect young and vulnerable women as you go into the land. And here you have this verse or this law that seems on first, on first glance as fairly offensive and about cross-dressing and seems odd <laughs> that why would they have this here? And so within this section, right, it's this push and call to the people to love the Lord their God, to be a holy and distinct people that will be a blessing to the nations. So what's going on in verse 5? And many have looked at this verse over the years and used it in all kinds of ways. You know, you look at ultra-conservative voices throughout history and be like, and that's why men can't act like women in plays, and this is why men have to dress manly and women have to dress womanly, which seems a stretch for the text. And on the other side, you know, I was reading commentaries this week where they're just like, "Uh, it's just a throwaway verse, we don't have to worry about it. Who knows? It's just the We've lost it. We've lost what context they could possibly be talking about. And, and neither seems very fair, because really when you look at it, when we look at the, the text, it, it is pretty clear that this is not about cross-dressing. That's not what Moses is concerned about. Because when he talks about that a woman should not put on male things, it's not clothing that's being referenced there, but actually it could be translated like things of war that a man would wear. Really uh, disguising oneself 
to look like a man, right? We know this from Lord of the Rings or various stories, right? When a woman will put on armor or things like that to look and to be, hey, Calvin, good to see you. <laughs> nice to get hugs. <laughs> but right, where, a, where a woman wants to be a man, or, or at least to portray herself as a man, and the same for the men putting on a woman's clothing here, to be able to look like, to appear as a woman. So it's not just that they are wearing each other's clothing for various reasons, but it's more about a desire to appear or to pass off as someone they are not. Right? It's not the practices, but rather it, it is about identity, right? being identified as and being known as by other people. Now today, right, this is obviously top of mind, top of culture, and it certainly is not a new phenomenon um, today or in the ancient world, this feeling that the way that I look doesn't reflect how I feel, or my clothes that I wear the things that I have, it just doesn't reflect it. It doesn't feel settled. It doesn't feel right. right. The current term for this in our culture is gender dysphoria, which is kind of this idea that I just, there's a dysphoric. It's not a disease. It's nothing. It's just, it doesn't feel right. Like, this is my gender, but I don't feel comfortable. It doesn't, I don't feel, it feels unsettled the way that I am or the way that my, my gender is. And then that leads to various ways to try to make oneself feel right or to look right or to portray oneself more in alignment with how they inwardly feel, which leads to all kinds of actions, some, some very big and permanent actions, some very small and temporary actions. Um, but to try to make oneself appear more in alignment with how they feel internally. This is not a new thing. Right? A lot of people talk about that in culture, conservatives saying, like, unprecedented in cult. No one's ever done these things. No, this is, I mean, this has been around as long as humans have been around, and which is clearly from the text and also through history. And it seems that this is an actual op option to the people. If Moses has to spell this out for his people, for the people of God as they go into the land, it must really be a significant issue for their time as well, and especially as they go into the land that they're about to take in, they're supposed to be a blessing to. Now, what's striking in this passage, that part can be striking and cause us some discomfort, but then the second half is even more uncomfortable, I think, for almost all of us, when now the person who does this is called an abomination. Like, whoa, incredibly strong language from Moses and seems difficult to reconcile why this would be such a big deal. Um, and why this would be an abomination. That would mean someone, if this continues, or someone continued in this, they would be driven outside of the camp. It's not a capital offense. They're not going to lose their life. There are a lot of laws where someone would lose their life for it through Leviticus, but this it would be eventually this person would be driven out of the midst of the people. Say, like, whoa, that's really harsh. And I think we have to deal with this in the again, this context of the Pentateuch, where this call of God to his people from Genesis on has been that they are going to be a reflection of God. They're going to be a reflection of his divine order that he created in Genesis, right? It's very specific. This is how the story begins, right, all the way back, and now they're going into the land, but it begins, right, with God creating a man and a woman to reflect the image of God. They are supposed to go forth. They are supposed to multiply. They are supposed to be God's proxy in this world together, and that this law then, it seems to be speaking to the fact that if, if they were to persist in this, 
that they would be at risk in no longer reflecting God's divine order, that they would no longer be able to reflect what God had intended for man and for woman, no longer able to reflect what God has intended really for the world. That they would no longer be able to reflect God's order, but they would also no longer be able to be a blessing to that culture as well. Right? They would no longer look distinguishable from the culture. Right? They would just blend right in and no longer have a voice or the ability to bring life or to speak life into that culture. Uh, they would no longer look like the people of God, which would make sense then why they would have to be driven out of the camp if you're no longer going to be a part of the people of God or look like the people of God. How could you be a part of it? Now, it's important to be really clear, too, as we're looking at this stuff. When we get into these types of laws and verses within the Pentateuch, this is a very specific, clear instruction given to Israel. This law is not renewed in the New Testament. Jesus does not give this law in the Sermon of the Mount and saying all people need to not dress like the opposite gender or sex. Right? This is a very specific law that's given to Israel at this specific time as they're about to enter the land. So we have to recognize that. Not all laws in the Old Testament get renewed in the New Testament for God's people. But there is a point to the law still. There's an ethic to the law, to all of God's laws, that still apply to God's people regardless of time and place and culture. And so the ethic of this law, the point of the law is still the same. And it seems as if the point of this law, especially in the context of Deuteronomy, is pointing the people back to their true identity, and strength, and acceptance. Like, where do you find your strength and identity? Where are you going to look when you feel afraid, when you don't feel right, when you're in a land that is not yours? Where are you going to run to? What are you going to look to for, to find that acceptance, that belonging, that strength and identity? And that's the central question of the Bible. It's the central question, really, of humanity, that humans have been asking these questions forever, right? What will make me feel whole? What will make me feel right? Everybody has this dysphoric feeling. You, know, you may not have gender dysphoria, but we have various other ones, right? It's just not, I don't feel right. So what will make me feel right? What would give me a sense of identity? What would give me a sense of belonging? What would make me a part of a people and give me strength? And that's really what this law is getting at for Israel. What are you going to look to as you go into the land as your source of strength and your identity? Now, the ways in which we view this, right, are pretty polarized. And that's because we live in a very polarized world. And again, not just now, but have always, right? Because it's true. In a lot of ways, there's really two primary ways in which we can view reality in the world that Israel had at their time and that we have today at our time as well, all the way through. If you've been reading some of the books that George has been putting out there on the realm, they're great. That Carl Truman book is a great read, but it's a, just a broad historical sweep of thought and philosophy from the Greeks to the moderns. I mean, that's great. And it's helpful to kind of get that context and things. But even within that, because our cultures are always changing, the things that we run to, the sources of self that we look to, right, have changed, are changing. You know, if it's finding it in the ancient Greeks in politics, if it's finding it in religion, if it's finding it in economics, if it's, I mean, yeah, we're going to always be shifting depending on the culture that we're in, of course. And we're just as affected as everybody else because of our culture. We're always going to find these sources of self in all kinds of things. But fundamentally, 
But fundamentally, there's two ways of viewing reality. One is that there is, in fact, an intended order to the entire universe, to everything. If there is a divine, if there is a God, he has an intention. There was a purpose. There is some sort of order to all things. And my job, this would have been the ancient view, and it's still the view of many today, right? My job is to try to conform to that order. When things are not conforming to that order, I experience all kinds of suffering and feel out of place, all right? If you feel out of place, what do I need to do? I need to conform myself. I need to try to find what that order is and put myself within it, and then I will experience that source of strength and identity and control and care and acceptance, right? So that first view is that there is an intended order, and we are all in an effort to try to conform ourselves to that order, all of creation. The other view, right, is that rather the world is just raw and neutral. It just is what it is. And it's up to us to create an order out of this raw material that we have. And so I have to, we as a society, as a culture, as individuals, have to mold and shape the raw materials around us into something that is life-giving and beautiful, creating some sort of sense of well-being and identity. And I need to work hard to try to create that, and then I will have to have others accept it for it to work, right? But you have to create and make others conform, or at least try to conform the, exist, the external world to those inward motivations and hopes and dreams. And so we have these two huge views, right? and they don't coexist. Either the world has an order that has been established, and that I am trying to find out what the order is, for all things, and conform myself to it. Or there is no order, and it's my responsibility to create one and to make an order and to find hope and life in that. This, right, this explains this constant conflict that we as humans are always feeling with one another and with ourselves. Well, what is wrong with me? Am I just out of order? Or is the world out of order? Like, which is wrong? You know, people tell me that something's wrong with me, and if I could just conform myself to others' expectations or to the societies or whatever, then I'll experience freedom and joy. But we know that that doesn't seem to work very well. This is really, because what really we're painting a picture of, right, is religion and irreligion, right? These are these two kind of options you can go down. The religious route is one of conformity. Here's the picture. Here's the order. If you conform, you will be accepted, if you conform to these various things, you will not be driven out of the camp, right? I mean, you will not be an abomination. Just if you do these things, you will come in. And then irreligion, right? So that's all, you know, hogwash anyway. I, I, I can create my own order to things, but that also is very unfulfilling because both groups, it really it's that shifting who and when and how do I get that acceptance, Within that religious view, if I have to conform to other people's expectations to find acceptance, strength, and identity, it seems like those standards are always shifting. Right? The moment I finally have conformed enough to whatever group it is, then it feels like the rules have changed, and I now have to conform in a new way, and a new way, or a new way. Or you're in constant fear of messing up or, no, or missing something and being driven out of that group. 
But there's a trap within this modern and ancient irreligious view as well of where you have to create your own identity. That sounds great to be able to like do it yourself and make your own who you're going to be and find that. that. But, it, but we exist in community. We exist with others. So ultimately, it's not fulfilling for me to find my own fulfillment unless everyone else will also agree to me and affirm my fulfillment that I have found for myself. Like, otherwise, I have to be a hermit or something, right? Because like, I have to live with others, and if you won't agree and affirm or accept this reality that I have created, I can't be with you. I don't feel good with you. I can't be around others unless... And that drives the same cycle of this fear and the guilt and the shame and never fitting in and feeling like something's wrong. Either something's wrong with me or something's wrong with them, but something's wrong, and it's got to get fixed. And it's this constant struggle and battle. Now, and if that's where it just stayed, right? If Deuteronomy 25 was the ending of the Bible, okay, this is a pretty bleak, polarized reality where you're going to have those who are in the camp and you're going to have the abominations that are outside of the camp. And those list of abominations is pretty big. This is not the only one. Right? There are 42 various things that are abominations in, this, in the eyes of the Lord. And spoiler alert, right? all of us are, as Gentiles. Like None of us would be in the camp. And so we have to deal with this, because if this is it, if this is the final end picture, you've got those that are in and those that are out. And those that are in are really going to fight hard to stay in and keep those that are out out. And those that are out are going to probably just throw up their hands and have to try to create their own camps on the outside which is where we all feel. Into this, though, finally comes right the gospel, which has been the point of the Pentateuch the whole way through. But the point has never been, if you follow these laws, you will experience happiness and fulfillment in life. The laws are good. God had an intention for his laws for his people because we do agree there is this divine order. There is a purpose and plan to all things. And the more we're in alignment with his order, the more beautiful and the more we're going to reflect him. So there is goodness and truth to the laws, but we don't, we're not going to find our strength through following the laws. We're not going to find our identity through following those laws. You're not going to get strength, saying, look, you're not going to get strength and identity in trying to pass yourself off as a different gender. That won't give you strength, he's saying. But you also won't find your strength by really looking manly or by really looking womanly. That's not going to give you strength either. Right? Like, that's not what the text is arguing for. The text has been arguing for the entire time, you will find your strength and identity in God and his great love for you. And in particular, and specifically, in the Savior who is to come and redeem all people. Because in Jesus Christ, if you know the gospel, right? if you don't know the gospel, Jesus Christ breaks down the walls of hostility is what the New Testament says. He comes and he rips the curtain in the tabernacle. There is no longer those on the outside of the camp, those on the inside of the camp. Christ removes it, and he brings everyone near. Everyone now has access to those answers that we've been so desperately searching for and seeking with our lives. Right, These deep-rooted desires within us. You know, the to be known, 
to be truly understood. Right in that Carl Truman book, he, he talks about that, that, that there seems to be these three really universal desires of humanity, right? One is just to be known. I want to be, I want someone to get me. I want someone to know who I am. But then we're instantly afraid of that. Because if you know me too well, you will see all my flaws and my failures, and you will push me out of the camp really fast. But in the gospel of Jesus Christ, I am fully and completely, truly known by God. Everything known. Intimately, not just superficially. Because that option of trying to do this on my own and get culture to affirm me, it may feel good to be affirmed or for people to act like they know me, but I know they don't know me. Right? Like who could know me? Only God. Only my creator could actually know me. Because I don't even know myself. That's the, how could, if I don't even know myself fully, how could I expect other people to truly know me? Right? Only God can ever truly know us. And in the gospel, I get to be known by God, and I also get to be fully known, but then also truly accepted. Because that se- second desire of humanity is to not just to be known, because we want to be known, but we're terrified also of being known, which is why we hide and we don't reveal all of our secrets to everybody, because uh, we're afraid of being rejected. But what we find in Jesus Christ is that I have been fully, fully known, truly known by God, and accepted fully accepted by God. He knows my issues. He knows the abomination that is me, my proclivity to all kinds of things. And he paid a price. He gave the ultimate price, the true cost of acceptance. He accepted me. He was willing to die for me with all of my flaws. That's love. That's acceptance. True acceptance. Unlike what the world can offer, Unlike what irreligion can offer, unlike what religion can offer, right? Like where you're accepted if you follow certain things. The gospel, it is you are accepted despite everything and anything. There's no way to not be accepted by Christ. And then that third desire of humanity that Truman talks about, you know, to be known, to be accepted, and to belong. Like, I just want to belong to someone, to something, to some group, to some type of family. And in the gospel, we have a real genuine and real belonging, a family that we get to be a part of. And not because we all agree and conform to the same group set of rules. That's what the world offers you and says, yeah, if you ascribe to these certain rules, you can be part of our group. Or if you look a certain way, you can be part of our group. Or if you have the same political views, you can be in my group. You know, if you, yeah, uh, well, there's all these litmus tests to be part of communities. No, a family is not that, right? A family, I have been united through Christ and through the Spirit, despite our different views, despite our different experiences, despite our different everythings. There's unity in diversity all of a sudden. The thing that we have always been craving and wanting to be part of a family that wasn't just based on our behaviors and our actions. Jesus is Savior of all. And when you look at Jesus' death and his resurrection, right, he was driven outside of the city walls 
He took the penalty that we deserved. He took all the scorn and the ridicule of being an abomination. I mean, all these things that would have fallen on the person who feels so out of place. Christ took that. He took that upon himself. He took the taunts and the jeers so that no one would be called an abomination again. Right? He took the penalty. There's no being driven out of the camp. And in his victory over sin and death, in his resurrection, he gives us this taste and this assurance of the future that awaits us. This new body, this new world, this new order to all things, where one day that dysphoria will be gone, where I will finally feel right. And I can stop trying to make everything right here in this life and in this world because I was not made for this life or this world. I was made for that life. For that world to be with Christ. Right? So we can strive now to no longer have to bring my life and my world in conformity to feel complete because I now know because of Jesus Christ where my completeness is really going to come. It's in Him and in my resurrection. That's when I will finally have my completeness. Now, what this does to us and changes in God's people is pretty profound. Like, if the gospel is true, if all of this is true, well, now we are now actually in a position to love and accept people, truly love people, because the gospel levels us and it unites us. There's no longer this arrogance. In that religion and irreligion category, it's just constant fighting and arrogance and judgment of each other. In the gospel, there's no judgment. There can't be, because I am just as abominable as anybody else. I have just been as loved as everybody else, and I can now live in such a way where I can show this and I can point people to true acceptance because I have found true acceptance. I can point people to love because I have been loved. This is the call to Israel. You are to love those people because you have been loved by God. You have been rescued. You are now going to go be a blessing. This is us. Because we have experienced this, we can be this. And it changes the way that we view people. It it. Instead of sitting in this high-mindedness and this arrogance and looking at others and saying, oh man, look at the world, they are so messed up and so abominable. No, I, I can't say that. Rather, right, these words, and even in, if I was going to use Deuteronomy 25, like this is not a statement about the Canaanites. They're not to go into the land and say, hey, when you get there, tell everybody in Canaan that if they dress like the opposite gender, that they're going to be an abomination and they're never going to be welcomed into our people. No, right? Like, it, it's for Israel. It, it's not for them, for the outsiders, for the world. And we have to remember, and it is changing this view, right, of our people versus them. There's no longer a them and us in the gospel. There's just God's people. He's redeemed all people. He, his death and resurrection was for everyone. Like, this is not a, oh, man, that, those people out there, I can't, no, it, they just haven't understood or experienced the love of God yet. Their actions and behaviors are just in line with my actions and behaviors too when I didn't know how loved and redeemed by God I was. Like it, it takes away the judgment and it enables us to live in such a way where we can have a posture of humility and understanding. And really, and it helps then to clarify, out of the resurrection and out of the gospel, the church is really this fulfillment of the hopes for the nation of Israel where you do have a people for God's namesake, a people where God will dwell. And the church is for people who are pursuing Jesus. Right? Like, let's just be really clear. That's what the church is. 
The church is for people who are pursuing Jesus. It's not for people who are trying to conform to various expectations, hoping to be accepted by a bunch of religious people. That's not the church. I mean, it is, unfortunately, but it's not. The church is to be the family of God. It's for people who are pursuing Jesus. What you look like outwardly, right, we are all a work in progress. We are all trying to conform to the image of God, absolutely. And we all have got our issues. And we all have those sources of strength and identity that are really antithetical to God. And we're all working through those things together. But there's no they are outside, they are inside based on behaviors. And because we, we ultimately, and this is that's hard to believe, right, because of various backgrounds, but we don't find our acceptance in the church. I, know, I think a lot of us have struggled with this over the years where we want to be accepted by the church. We want to be accepted by others, but we, that's actually not where we find our acceptance. I don't find my acceptance in the church. I find my acceptance in Christ, which leads me to the church. Like, we are a people who have been accepted, who come together to remind ourselves that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We, we're not creating a community based off of something or expectations or conformities. We are a community that was created by Christ. It's kind of like waking up and realizing you have these brothers and sisters you never knew about. You're not creating it. You're discovering it. Right? We're walking into it. And as together, then, we, can, we don't have to offer these counterfeit forms of acceptance that the world does. But it's hard not to. But it, it's easy to offer counterfeit ones where, yeah, everybody, we, I know you. No, I don't. God knows you. I can't just say I know you. I don't point to that. Your hope isn't that you're going to be known by a community of people. The hope is that you're going to be known by God. You know, this idea of acceptance, I don't have to just accept you. No, you've been accepted by God. Now I can also speak truth to you, right? I need truth spoken to me too. It's not about we've been accepted. We're together because we're all pursuing God. And we believe that there is the true source of all things and that we're all trying to conform to that ultimate reality that awaits us. All people have been redeemed and all who are honestly pursuing God and pursuing his plans and his purposes. That's the church. Conforming to his will rather than trying to create a community that conforms to our will. But this takes, this takes experiencing that true acceptance from Christ, right? Because in both groups, like we're either going to get really upset with the religious in our world, because many of us ultimately, right, we know, have very religious hearts for various reasons. And those, those of us who are religious are going to struggle with judging and being arrogant towards the irreligious. And the irreligious are going to struggle with being judgmental and arrogant towards the religious. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, right, it enables us to actually just love each other because we both have been accepted. We both have been looking to the wrong sources for our hope and our identity and our strength. And we can both now look to Christ and be a community together in him. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for the hope that we have in you. Lord, thank you that we are free from the law. Lord, that, the, that through Jesus Christ, these, uh, the expectations have been released. Lord, that you performed for us, your faithfulness and righteousness have been given to us. 
Lord, we thank you for the hope and that love that we have in you. Lord, we also, though, pray that we will come to experience it more and more, that we will grow in our conformity to you, not necessarily to the world's expectations, Lord, but really to yours and to your order. Lord, we're thankful that this life is not the end. If this life was it, oh, Lord, we thank you that our true life is still to come. And Lord, we're thankful for the tastes, though, that we do get in this life of joy and hope and peace. The chance that we have to be together is your people and in your family. Lord, just deepen us and strengthen us in the hope that we have so that we can stand firm and confident in who we are in you and look to you as our strength. And Lord, and also that we can stand confident in our culture. Lord, that we can be a blessing to the nations, that we can speak truth and be loving uh, Lord, towards outsiders. Lord, because there really is no more distinction in Christ Jesus. Lord, strengthen us as a church in these things. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.